0: This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. Molly Moon is a behind-the-scenes name in the civil rights movement who has long been overlooked. A new book tries to correct that. It's called Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. Author Tanisha Ford gives us a story about this beguiling woman who, despite being a powerhouse fundraiser, was often reduced to a fashionable socialite. Our Secret Society is a fascinating book that details Molly Moon's journey from Mississippi poverty to a life as a premier New York fundraiser. With us to talk about the book is historian and cultural critic Tanisha Ford. She is a professor at the Graduate Center CUNY. Welcome back to Reset, Tanisha. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Before we dig into her life, give us a snapshot of who Molly Moon was perceived to be and who she actually was.
1: When I encountered her in the archive in 1961, she was perceived to be the grand dame of Harlem, a socialite, someone who threw amazing parties But once i started to dig around in her archive and her personal papers i realized that she was a political strategist she was an insider she was trained in in marxist social theory in the 1930s Um, she was a social worker for the welfare department in new york city a job which she kept throughout the entirety of her life And um, she then rose to use those skills to become a major fundraiser for the civil rights movement. And it's that part of her story that I was really fascinated by. Like, why don't we know her name? And so I really set about piecing together her life story in order to share with everyday Americans the importance of fundraising in the fight for racial justice. What was her educational background? She grew up in a family that was working poor in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Her own parents had middle school education, which was common for people of their graduation, but they encouraged Molly Moon to go on to receive advanced education. So she received her high school training at a a college in in Mississippi, which provided secondary education for the the children of the descendants of, of former slaves. And then she went on to get a degree in pharmacy from Meharry Medical College. Um, after she received that degree in 1928, she then, like many people, took classes in graduate training and education, particularly in education. She also studied the German language during her time when she lived in Berlin in the 1930s. Um, and, and also public policy related courses. So this was a woman who... Had a degree in pharmacy, worked as a pharmacist, but once she really became committed to the fight for racial equality, she pivoted her focus in order to engage in more social services related educational training.
0: And tell us what year she was born.
1: She was born in 1907, so the early years of Jim Crow America, as it's solidifying uh, racial segregation as the rule of law in the United States. She was a young Black girl living in Mississippi, and then her family relocated to be with other family members who had migrated to Cleveland, Ohio, before returning to the South in her adolescent years.
0: You write about how Molly and her peers were part of the New Negro movement and were internationalists. Explain what those terms meant back then.
1: Well, when we think about New Negro intellectualism, we can think about people who are Molly Moon's friends like Langston Hughes, Dorothy West, um, Louise Thompson Patterson. Zora Neale Hurston, Alain Locke, others who were really invested in thinking about what Black freedom looked like for African-Americans, no longer tied to notions of primitivism, Racialized stereotypes about the Black body, the wantonness of Black women, for example, as a a very pernicious stereotype. These were people who wanted to imagine a new kind of freedom, economic freedom, intellectual freedom, artistic freedom. So when Molly Moon moves to New York City in the early 1930s, she falls in with this crowd of new Negro intellectuals. She becomes friends with people like County Cullen, Claude McKay, people who are very much invested in transforming the political social, and cultural landscape of Harlem in that time period, and they end up traveling abroad to Moscow in, in 1932 to make what is supposed to be a racial propaganda film that exposes the horrors of Jim Crow segregation in the United States and labor exploitation across the South. Now, the film is never made, but Molly Moon and Langston Hughes and the others who were on this trip were deeply transformed by this international experience, and for Molly Moon in particular this becomes part of her framework for how she understands you know economic justice as something that is not just about African American freedom but about about the freedom of people of African descent from, you know, across the world. And it's also on this trip where she meets the love of her life, Henry Lee Moon, who is a journalist and leading Black intellectual of the time period. And they form something of a power coupleship, as we would use the language today. They're this power couple as they move into the 1940s and both begin working in very prominent positions in the fight for racial equality.
0: I want to go back to her time, not only in Russia, but when she leaves Moscow, she spend some time in Europe as a young single woman.
1: She and- does. And that was one of my favorite parts of the history, just to piece together. I mean, she leaves Moscow after this film is, isn't made and she relocates to Berlin with some of the members of this cast. And initially she thinks she's going to use her minor experience in this film to then launch herself as the Josephine Baker of Berlin, you know, to become a star of stage and screen. Well, it turns out she ends up finding work in a lesbian cabaret as a hostess where she dresses in a costume uh, to serve patrons. Um, So it's not necessarily the glamorous life that she anticipates, but she's working in this cabaret by night and then she begins to take classes at the University of Berlin during the day. And so she, kind of strikes this balance between being on the social scene in Moscow and this inner war period, and also learning and expanding her her educational goals, partnering with other American students who are doing a study abroad in Berlin at the time. And she's doing all this, of course, as the Nazi party is rising to power. And so she can see firsthand um, the the global oppression of peoples, and she's able to connect what's unfolding in the United States as it relates to people who look like her with what's unfolding in a space like Germany.
0: How would you describe her political ideology?
1: I would say that it's largely informed by a a Black approach to socialism. Like many people of her generation who were coming of age, um, graduating from college just as the nation is spiraling into the Great Depression, she's looking for alternatives to to capitalism and the capitalist system, which, of course, is is really leaving Black communities economically stranded. And she's actually peers with the famed legal um, scholar and and activist, Polly Murray, who who terms their generation the Depression generation. So many of these people in the Depression generation are turning to socialism and communism as a way to imagine new possibilities. So I would say that Molly Moon's political thought is largely shaped by the kind of um, Black interpretations of socialism that are emerging from the U.S. South. She's also deeply influenced by um, ideas that are coming out of the Negritude movement, so thinking about anti-colonialism, and even some strands of Black nationalism as well. I found in her letters her relating to her husband about how she heard members of Marcus Garvey's UNIA speak about Black nationalism, and there are certain elements of Black nationalism that she really ascribes to as well. So it's kind of like this hodgepodge of anti-colonial, anti-capitalist politics, particularly in the early part of her life.
0: Uh, Tanisha, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Molly's brief connections in Gary in Chicago, since that's uh, the area that I am talking to you from. Tell us about her time there.
1: Now, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. I know, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Indiana. (laughs) Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I too was astounded to see that Molly Moon had connections to Gary. Her mother marries a man who works in the mills in Gary. In the early 1940s, she has to go home, well, really in the late 1930s, she has to go home to support her mother after her stepfather um, falls ill and is unable to work, work in the factories, and then he eventually abandons Molly's mom altogether and Molly has to put her pharmacy license to good use at a time when she didn't really think that she would ever do that again. She had dreams of being a teacher and then a social worker, but she uses this practical skill and works in a pharmacy in Gary and is able to make a way for her mother and herself and so she moves back and forth between Gary, Chicago where she also has a progressive community of political thinkers and activists. She's a part of the the uh, Chicago society scene in the late 1930s and early 40s. So she's moving back between back and forth between Gary, Chicago, and New York City in the late 1930s and early 40s. And so I really thought that that was fascinating. That it's a different way for us to imagine what mi- Black migration looks like. So here we're going from the Midwest to the East Coast and back, as opposed to the typical South to North story that we tell. It was also interesting for me to see how much the social politics are are entangled with the politics of the day, the intellectualism of the day, and that Molly Moon is a leading voice who's being called to give talks in Chicago about you know, the potential of communism and socialism for Chicago-based intellectuals.
0: So she marries Henry Moon. He ends up becoming press secretary for the NAACP. They move from D.C. to New York. And you talked about some of their friends, but they had fabulous parties. I would have loved to attend a Molly Moon party. (laughs) Um, Talk about their social network, those parties, and then how that led to her doing her first fundraiser.
1: So by this point, Henry Lee Moon, you know, before he takes on his role with the NAACP, he actually works in FDR's White House. He's a minor administrator, so he's building relationships with people in the so-called Black Cabinet. So people from Mary McLeod Bethune to Robert Weaver to Frank Horn and who, Frank Horn, who is the uncle of Lena Horne, let me just say. And so they're building this community for, you know the artists and intellectuals in New York City to the people who are political insiders in Washington, D.C. They host these amazing parties that bring the Black community, the wide spectrum of the Black community into their home. They start forming relationships with people like Richard Wright, um, with Ralph Ellison, um, Augusta Savage, the famed uh, sculptor. And it's through those networks and relationships that Molly Moon is asked to spearhead her first Fundraiser, which is for the Harlem Community Arts Center, an organization that's largely f- funded with WPA monies um, that is directed by Augusta Savage initially, but then by Gwendolyn Bennett, who becomes the director until the center is forced to close. Now, this organization becomes a model for the, the Southside Community Arts Center um, in Chicago, for example, so they're looking to Harlem and taking a lot of the cues about how they could structure, although one could argue that they are more successful in the fundraising effort than New York. But Molly's brought in to work alongside people like Islanda Robeson, Roberson to fundraise for this community art center. And although they're not able to save the center, Molly launches her signature fundraising event, the Bowles Arts Ball, which will become her signature event until the late 1970s, early 80s. And like you, I would have loved to attend one of these parties. And fortunately, I was able to find photographs from the balls that I was able to include in Our Secret Society. In
0: today's dollars, what kind of money was Molly raising? And where was the money going to?
1: Well, in today's figures, we can estimate that she raised approximately six million dollars through her National Urban League Guild, which was the fundraising arm that she established in 1942 um, to support the work of the National Urban League. Now, six million dollars might not seem like a lot today when we compare that to, say, for example, the money that Mackenzie Scott is giving to various black community organizations. But it's really important for us to understand that she's doing much of this fundraising during the era of Jim Crow. So she's receiving funds largely from black communities, washerwomen, domestic laborers, Pullman porters, teachers, teachers black doctors and lawyers. So this, a lot of the money that Molly Moon is raising is coming from within our community. And and it's going primarily to the National Urban League to support voter registration drives, um, sit-ins and other large scale demonstrations, the March on Washington, by the time we get to the early 1960s. But I also wanted to trace how Molly Moon and other women like her are really the the central uh, the center of a black freedom financial grid where we can think about black churches being also important pieces of this. Black sororities and fraternities, social clubs like savings clubs, but also um, bridge clubs, for example, were raising a lot of money. And they were giving these monies not only to the NAACP and the National Urban League, but also the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality as well. So it's really this matrix of money that's going to a variety of Black organizations during the height of civil rights movement protests.
0: How does she connect with the National Urban League versus, say, you know,
1: NAACP? That is a really excellent question because one would think with her more radical-leaning politics that she would have not leaned toward the National Urban League, for example. But what's important to note that is that in the early nineteen. 19- 30s and into the early 1940s, the National Urban League is really doing work to support Black domestic workers and other Black laborers who don't reap the benefits from FDR's New Deal politics. So this is a moment where the National Urban League is showing itself as a more militant, um, radical organization that sees the vanguard as the working class. And Molly Moon is by this point a social worker who is good friends with Lester Granger, who becomes the head of the National Urban League. He's also a social worker. And so he's worked alongside Molly Moon raising funds for the Harlem Community Art um <clears throat> Art Center. Excuse me. So once he becomes the leader of the National Urban League, it's it's he who taps Molly Moon to create her own fundraising wing of the National Urban League. And she's very clear that that body has um, a set of principles that comes out of a black, black radical organizing tradition. And well into the 1950s, when Molly Moon is bringing lawsuits against hotels in Midtown Manhattan which that won't grant her Booking for, you know, say, for example, a garden party, she's using the more progressive, if not radical tactics of the NAACP to agitate for change within the court system. So Molly was always more left of, of center than the National Urban League, even once she started working with them. But it's really that kind of perspective that gives great shape to the politics of the National Urban League as it moves into the Whitney Young era of leadership. This is
0: Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We've been talking with historian Tanisha Ford, author of the new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. Tanisha charts the history of an oft overlooked fundraiser who was part of the civil rights movement and what we can learn from Molly Moon's strategy and vision. Uh, So, Tanisha, I purposefully started reading your book on the day I attended the Chicago Urban League gala earlier this month. Um, I like to think I was dressed to the nines. The crowd was. The Isley brothers were the performers. There was a lot of corporate sponsorship. And that is nothing new. So let's talk about how organizations or even how Molly had to negotiate where the money came from and who she was hobnobbing with.
1: Now, let me just say Molly Moon would have been really proud of you, dressed to the <laughs> nines, dancing to the Isley Brothers. OK, that's definitely a Molly Moon party tradition. It was a so, good time. <laughs> I believe it. Um, <clears throat> you know, African-American organizations have really been faced with uh, an economic funding crisis that comes straight out of this the history of white supremacy and racism in this country. I mean, and there's just no other way around it. So Molly Moon is having to negotiate the fact that receiving money from the African-American community, while important, it's not necessarily enough money to really cover the cost of the expanding price ticket on freedom, right? And it, and we hate to even think about it that way because we, we like to think that democracy should be ours as citizens of this country. But the reality of it is that all of these things, large scale marches, lunch programs, breakfast programs, after school care, all of these things cost money. So these organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League, they are tasked with figuring out then how can we meet the donations we're receiving from our key community supporters with other outside donations. And oftentimes that means taking money from philanthropic foundations, and major corporations so in molly moon's case with the national urban league in the 1940s and early 50s i mean they're receiving a lot of money from the rockefeller foundation um from the rockefeller brothers foundation which is another offshoot within the rockefeller family the field foundation later on the taconic foundation and the ford foundation become major supporters as well as corporations like pepsico and General Electric and a lot of these companies want to see themselves as on the right side of justice. They think that it it looks it makes them look good to potential black consumers, that, to show that they at least give lip service to racial equality. And in the book, I describe this as racial equality capitalism. Like it becomes a way for them to create a new sponsorship base. And so Molly Moon and Lester Granger, and then later Whitney Young realize that there's this dynamic. Uh, Lester Granger takes the approach to try to keep this as a secret from the Black community and not let them know the degree to which they have white big dollar individual donors and philanthropic foundation leaders on their board. Um, Whitney Young says, why are we keeping this a secret? This is our greatest asset. We should allow people to know that we are receiving money from these corporations and foundations to support our social services work, but also our research on you know, racism and racial inequalities and economic inequalities, because that will make us invaluable to the White House and to Congress. So there are these tensions and different schools of thought about where we should take money from, and then what that money could and should be used for. And as I was writing this, of course, we're living through the murder of Jim, um, the murder of George Floyd and the pandemic, and we're seeing a similar dynamic happening with corporations pledging, you know, themselves to anti-racism in in 2020. And so I was really interested in making these historic historical connections between the past and the present day. But there was
0: one white man who liked to be front and center. He was not behind the scenes, and that was a Rockefeller skion. Tell us about Winthrop and his relationship to Molly and his. Um, financial commitment to the National Urban
1: League. Yes, Winthrop Rockefeller. Okay, he was the maverick of the Rockefeller family. Now, the Rockefellers had a long tradition of giving to Black causes. I mean, we can see their involvement in, in the United Negro College Fund and the founding, um, rebranding, if you will, of Spelman College. Exactly, right? So they, they have a, this long history, but oftentimes they would be seen as giving money from their gilded cage, tossing it down to the unwashed Black masses, if you will. Winthrop Rockefeller did not want to be seen in that same bourgeois giving tradition. So he wanted to work ground level with African-American fundraisers. He pledged his allegiance, if you will, to the National Urban League. And in that role as chair of their service fund, he worked very closely with Molly Moon and the women of the National Urban League Guild. So much so That he not only gave in today's funds what would have been, you know, a couple million dollars to create a new headquarters building for the National Urban League. He also put his name on an invitation alongside Molly Molly Moons to host an Urban League party at the Rainbow Room in his family's Rockefeller Center. This was a big deal because of course they were crossing the racial line. This would have been in 1948. And so they became the faces of integration in New York City. And this created something of a, a rumor mill around whether or not these two were having an affair because they were often photographed together. They hosted this event together. Now, mind you, both of these individuals were married but that even seemed to stoke the flame even more. And so in the book, I tried to trace why people would have made these connections between the two of them and started this rumor. And also the stakes of an interracial affair during a time when Black people are being lynched at high numbers, where people are being falsely imprisoned for even the, giving the appearance of looking at a white person. So this was really political and social fodder of the day. So, yes, you have this black woman who is
0: sexy and stylish and commanding, who was able to get someone like a Winthrop Rockefeller to put his money where his mouth is. You write so well about how Molly navigated race, gender, class, patriarchy. Where did you land about how she moved in all these spaces and the impact it had on her?
1: Well, I know if I look at my own social circle, and if you look at yours, Natalie, we know women like Molly Moon, right? We we see women who have to navigate these spaces. And what I thought um, was that in many ways, she was, to use the language we often use to describe this, she was ahead of her time. When I interviewed a, a close member of her family, she, he told me that she could have been a politician, right? Molly Moon could have been Kamala Harris, for example, not to mention they're in the same sorority, but she she could have been a politician. I mean, she had the skills, she had the charisma, she had the charm, but massage noir being what it is. And by that, I mean Expl- the intersection yeah. <laughs> of, of sexism and racism, right? That being what it is, once male leadership you know took over the movement and and even as historians our focus on the movement has oftentimes been on male leadership until the recent decades it meant that she was kind of pushed to the margins of the story as it was unfolding you know people didn't necessarily know what to to make of this woman who was seen by this point as as a party planner as a as a hostess And so they diminished her political contributions. They diminished her skills as a political strategist. And I really wanted to reclaim that. And in so doing, really pay tribute to the Black women and other women of color who are working in the nonprofit space today, who are trying to find solutions to issues like mass poverty and voter suppression today. I wanted to show them that they're part of a genealogy of Black women who were bold and unapologetic in terms of their organizing skills. I wanted people who are still working and toiling as volunteers in the Urban League guilds across the country today to realize the the power of the guilds and that by the early 1960s, the women of the guilds in many ways, had more power than the male leadership who helmed the local affiliates of the Urban League. So there's there's a long, rich history here. And and, in reclaiming Molly Moon in the way that I am, I'm joining even a long tradition of Black women who've done this work of reclamation around her. I mean, there was a wave of this reclamation in the 1970s and in the 1980s. Think about Alice
0: Walker reclaiming Zora Neale Hurston.
1: Exactly. You know, so this, this is a tradition that, Unfortunately, we as Black women scholars and thinkers have had to continue to pull the Black women who have meant so much to our communities from the margins of history and place them in the center. And in so doing, it shapes a new way for us to think about our current reality as people moving through the United States and living and trying to find joy and, and to do more than survive, you know, trying to really thrive in, under the conditions in which we live.
0: Can you give some examples of the criticisms that Molly received and the way that she would sometimes be sidelined?
1: Yes, yeah, so part of it is that, you know, once younger radical activists whom we associate with the Black Power Movement begin to take center stage in the discourse around Black freedom. And understandably so. I mean, there was a a real crisis in urban centers across the country, Chicago included, New York included, where I live. Um, They begin to critique the older guard of of civil rights leadership and and saying that the, the strategies that you all have used to work within the system have failed us. And so we need to rethink how we get free and working within the system won't work. We need a revolution. And so although Molly Moon had called for a similar revolution in the 1930s and the 1940s, by this point, she's seen as part of the problem, right? And so I really wanted to trace the evolution in political thought and and to use a woman who lived a long life to show the complexities of Black ideologies around freedom. You know, it's not as simple as here are the radicals, here are the racial liberals, here are the progressives. I mean, it was really a mix of of ideologies. And a lot of these people, even when they had differing political views, they all sat at a table, like a table Molly Moon would have, you know, hosted at her own home to have these discussions about where we go from here.
0: We talked about the major white financial contributions, as well as the working class, Black contributions. But there's also an emerging Black elite and middle class that's part of this movement and donating. Can you talk about them?
1: Yes, I most certainly am happy to talk about this because, you know, on the other side of World War II, so in this point I'm talking 1945 to 1950, we see a Black middle class and a Black upper class emerging. And so there's a lot of conversation in Ebony Magazine where writers are suggesting that, okay, we don't want to take this money from the white moneyed elites, these old guard families who have built their fortunes off the backs of former enslaved Black labor and continue to exploit Black laborers, you know, in that moment of, you know, the post-war era. So what about raising up our own black millionaire class and seeing them as our philanthropic base? So today, this would be the equivalent of turning to somebody like a Jay-Z or LeBron James or, you know, leaders of business and industry, you know, people who have amassed millions um, in in the business world and seeing them as the leaders of our philanthropic movements today. So they were having these conversations in the 1940s and 50s. And Molly Moon is, of course, then trying to tap into this, you know, emerging Black elite as a source of funding. But then there are also conversations and debates about whether or not Black capitalism will save us. Like, maybe working alongside Black capitalists is not the solution to the issue as well. And so in the book, I try to show the the scope and scale of the Black middle class. I mean, during this time period, there's maybe a dozen Black millionaires, but there's also a sizable Black middle class. And these are people who have extensive art collections. They have second homes in places like Idlewild and Martha's Vineyard and the Hamptons. Um, these are folks who have race forces. They They attend, you know, the Louisville, the big race in Louisville, you know, every year. I mean, it's like a, there's a hidden history around this that I wanted to show while also talking about the complexities of the economics and the politics of the day.
0: As a journalist, I was fascinated by how you did your research. I'm looking in your footnotes. But I imagine that you spent a lot of times with the archives of Ebony and Jet magazines. Can you talk about what you found in those periodicals? Ebony
1: and Jet, let me just tell you, oh, my goodness, those archives, there's just so many hidden gems there, in part because, you know, as the major publications of the day alongside Black newspapers like the Chicago Defender, which again was another important voice in this whole dialogue, I mean, they are detailing conversations about Black economics, Black education, um, the, the nature of of. Black poverty in this country, they're having conversations about the global scope of Black life, um, the rise of of African politicians in post-colonial places like Ghana, um, and so forth. So I, I really thought that Ebony was such an important source material, but they're also covering these social events. I mean, Jerry Major is the society queen. And of course, she's writing for Ebony and Jet in this time period. And she and Molly Moon become good friends. Molly Moon is close uh, friends with the Johnsons as well. And so Molly Moon is also being covered in in Ebony and Jet. But they so because of the details of the comings and goings of black social scenes and black social communities and networks, I get all of this amazing granular detail about what people were eating, what they were drinking, where they were partying, what kind of hotels were amenable to black clientele. So much detail that I think gives the book a richness and a life. And I'm really grateful to um those magazines and other black newspapers that allowed me to tell this this history in ways that I think are thorough, but also engaging for readers. You know, in certain ways, I hope that the book reads like a novel.
0: Well, it does. And we just touched the surface and there's some we didn't even get to the spoilers. So there's a lot more to learn and read about Molly Moon. We've been talking to historian Tanisha Ford about her new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the glamour, money and power behind the civil rights movement. Thanks for joining us, Tanisha. Thanks again for having me.